and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights, and this is as bad a fire as... On this episode, reviewing Denver, looking forward to Sonoma, and getting everybody up to speed on the inside stories of the Western Swing. It's going to be Tim Wilkerson. Wilkerson goes 391-2. The big winners, the big surprises, and the biggest moments from Denver lead us into Sonoma. Perfect reaction time for Dallas Glenn. Triple zeros across the top of the time slip, and at the finish line stripe, it's Dallas Glenn. This is the NHRA Insider. It's Bruce Pentagon, 395.8, 324 miles an hour. It marks a victory of 26 ten thousandths of a second. Hey, everybody, it's Brian Loans here. Another episode of the NHRA Insider. It is a uh, it is a race week episode, of course, as we are in the midst of the Western Swing. Um, it's going to be an old school kind of monologue style episode because um, quite literally everybody is doing something somewhere else. Um I managed to actually come home to the East Coast for a single day and then uh, heading back to the West Coast, uh, basically finish this show and pack my stuff and <laughs> and off I go again, which is the way I love it. It's the way I think anybody involved in, in motorsports and racing loves it. The continuity, the weeks back to back to back, uh, it is not, not anything I'm complaining about, nor I think anybody else is. Um, Denver was an incredible race. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, even some of the things that are happening up to this minute between the two events. We talk about some of the logistical challenges that come up in the Western Swing. And um, there is one racer that was having a massive one that does appear to be solved now. So I'll get you inside that story. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the schedule for 2023. That's obviously been a big uh, piece of news that's come out in the last week or two. We touched a little bit on it uh, in the last show, but we'll go uh, we'll go a little bit more into depth uh, in this show. And we're going to talk about uh, Sonoma, which, um, you know, I want to look at uh, our winners from Denver. Do we think any of those four, uh, really three, have a chance to sweep the Western Swing and kind of um, maybe get some get some perspective on on really who got off on the right foot and who seems to be even surprising me a little bit? Uh, we'll get into that as well. So. Let's just kick it right off with our 2023 schedule. Um, if you're a hardcore NHRA fan and you're listening to this, you know this already, but the season will start in Gainesville next year. It will start the second week in March. Uh, we'll run Gainesville. There will be a, a week off, and then we'll go to Phoenix, then to Pomona. Then we'll have a week off, and then we'll go to Vegas. And this schedule change was made uh, for a bunch of different reasons. The, you know, the main obvious factors are, one, logistics, um, in the in the, the typical fashion, what we have done is obviously start the season in, in Pomona, run Phoenix, send everybody back to Gainesville, send everybody back to Vegas. And when this order change has happened, it allows for a southwestern swing so the teams are not taxed with having to drag their stuff um, clear across the country multiple times. You can make one kind of long trip, much as they're doing now, uh, minus the you know insane uh, elevation changes and stuff like that. Slightly different topography in that part of this, the uh, the western part of the United States, but you know the logistics of the movement of the teams and vehicles was one uh, consideration. And really, the schedule of racing in Southern California in February is full. Um, the we know that NASCAR is going to have their race inside the LA Coliseum again. We know that uh, they are going to run uh, Fontana, California, uh, pretty shortly thereafter when they do that. So. You have those two things going on. You have a Daytona 500 uh, in February, of course, and you have all the other, you know, kind of wintertime stuff going on in Southern California. So it really didn't seem to make a lot of sense to wedge a drag race into what is already a very tight schedule of racing in Southern California. 
as well as the fact that we frankly do not want to go head to head on a Sunday with the Daytona 500. If we're going to run our race on that, you know, on an open weekend in in February in Southern California, uh, we would be running next to the Daytona 500. And uh, that is not a place anybody in motorsports wants to be. That's obviously one of the, the most grand events it is the most viewed nascar race of the year every year and uh, that's kind of one of those all eyes are on it and so rather than you know have ourselves get lost in the shadow of that we can move the start of the season back a couple weeks and get things going in gainesville we did that in 2021 obviously and it was immensely successful it was a neat way to start the year the energy in gainesville is amazing you know to come out of the gate with an event uh the size the scope of the gator nationals i think is a good look for our sport and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, you know, obviously, I like getting going as early as possible like the rest of us do. I mean, I, I want to go drag racing in February. And, and actually, I may be able to go drag racing in February a little bit now that um, that we're not starting until March. I may be able to pick and choose a couple little small side races to, to get my vocal cords warmed up before our official season starts there. So that's really the layout of the, of the schedule. Um, I think when we go to the western part of the country in that march time frame we're still going to have great weather you know we're not going to be doing what we did in in august which is what we had to do but going out and running the quote-unquote winter nationals last summer was just brutal i mean it was i don't know if it was as brutal as sunday in denver we'll get into that but boy the conditions were um as one would expect the conditions in los angeles uh, during the dog days of summer were not exactly conducive to having people come out of their homes and sit in the grandstands and just melt and wilt while they're watching the race cars So now you know you're up to speed on the schedule. Let's talk a little bit about one of these inside stories I mentioned, Western Swing Style, and it involves the Pro Stock winner from the Mile High Nationals, Matt Hartford. And they had a a kind of a catastrophe befall them yesterday where their tow rig, dead in the water. And nobody seemed to have an an answer for them. Um, Not not an answer to be repaired was one problem, and then the answer of another truck was another problem. And, you know, Matt uh, used all the resources uh, that he had available and and ended up getting a lot of a big helping hand from a former pro stock racer in the form of V Gaines. Uh, v Gaines, a familiar name to many of you hardcore NHRA fans out there. Gaines ran pro stock for many, many years and he operates a trucking company or multiple companies, but one of them happens to be a trucking company. So um, last night I spoke, I'm making this podcast on Tuesday of Sonoma week. And I was flying back to Boston last night. It was in communication with Matt and Amber Hartford. And, um, I know a couple of guys in that part of the world with trucking, uh, businesses as well. So I was trying to line them up something that, that, uh, could be a backup, but V gains came through for them. And it was one of those unique situations where their race trailer is not set up the same way a typical 18 wheeler trailer is. And so the depth of where it has to connect to the back of the tractor to be towed down the road, um, is different than a normal a normal trailer so it was not a situation where just any old big rig could just hook up to that thing and take it away so they had to find a truck that was configured the right way and and v gains ultimately got them on the road and as uh, i make this uh, about midday on the east coast that uh, that truck and trailer is making tracks out to sonoma it would have been it would have been beyond terrible if something was unable to be discovered and, and they got kind of marooned there in Denver. So uh, very glad for uh, Matt and Amber and, and the entire 
Total Seal Piston Rings team, they're going to make it. And this is another example of the community of drag racing. I mean, everybody was trying to help these guys. Uh, people were, everybody, I mean, I was getting text messages from other people trying to help. And, and you know, it was one of those things where the, the, the bat signal went up. And ultimately, it was another drag racer that was able to uh, provide the assistance. So we will see Matt and the Total Seal team in Sonoma, as well we should, having come off a, a great victory. Um you know, the, the, this, the Mile High Nationals uh, is a race for obvious reasons that lends itself to upsets and lends itself to bizarre happenstance, if you will, more so than really anywhere else. And if you look historically, um, you'll see that the Mile High Nationals, if not outright winners, a lot of finalists and a lot of semifinalists at the Mile High Nationals over the years are not the typical names you would expect from whichever era you happen to be looking at. And that was, again, the case this year, of course, and we'll go through a couple of different categories uh, on that front. But for Matt Hartford, uh, a a kind of study and stick-to-itiveness here for this team, you know, it's it's not like it's it's not like we're making anything up when I tell you that they were, they were working so hard and not seeing the results they wanted for much of the beginning of this year. And we all know in, in whatever you do in life, it, that becomes a, this really, really tough thing to swallow. And you, and you almost get to a point where you, you work so hard, you're working against yourself. But uh, clearly, Matt, Eddie Granaccia, KI, the rest of that team kept their noses down, kept their attitudes up. And that carried them to a uh, to a performance that was really good. And, and it was, to me, one of those one of those really nice well-rounded wins you see somebody get where yes he qualified well had a good car yeah we watched him drive um if you saw that final round he was near perfect and he was on the tree all day long he was comfortable and it really showed so the first question you have to ask is can matt hartford sweep the swing well if we go back to the traditional layout of the swing in 2019 there was one guy well two guys really that that made multiple final rounds Matt Hartford and Greg Anderson, they met each other in the final round of that Mile High Nationals. Greg Anderson won. They met each other in the final round of Seattle, and that was where Matt Hartford stopped Greg Anderson from the sweep, and he did it in very razor-thin fashion. That 2019 uh, flavor-packed Northwest Nationals was bonkers, as, as you all remember, with Matt Hartford winning, Austin Brock getting his first, and, of course, John Forrest winning his 150th, ending up in the grandstands and, and everything else that happened that day. So, can Matt Hartford sweep the swing? Well, now that we know he's going to be at Sonoma, the answer is can means you're able, right? And yes, he is able to. Will Matt Hartford sweep the swing? Uh, you know, nobody's done it in a decade. Um, I'm not. I'm not saying he cannot do it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it, the odds are very long. And I'm going to be interested to see when they get back down to sea level, which is where we're going in Sonoma. Uh, where the car qualifies now if Matt is a top half qualifier in Sonoma I'm, I'm gonna put some chips on his uh, I'm gonna put some chips on on Matt if if the car is not a top half qualifier in Sonoma I'm not and that sounds like a dumb thing to say like well why, of course not but I, I'm very interested to see if the outright performance of the car is what we thought it was on the mountain versus a very smart technically savvy approach to tuning the car getting it to where it did because in the mountain you're going to make small changes. You're going to do things that are going to separate you from another team, whether that is being spot on in your gear ratios, whether that is just the, the, the small chassis adjustments. Those are the make or breaks at the Mile High Nationals. When we get to Sonoma, yes, you need the chassis tuning. You need all that. But you just need raw power. 
And when we look at what the density altitude will likely be, especially during our evening qualifying session on Friday, the air is probably going to be somewhere around 1,000 feet, between 1,000 and 1,200 feet. When I look at my historical weather data from this race and I look at what we see in that first session for pro stock cars, it's usually around 1,000 feet. Now, it was around 9,000 feet in Denver when all in with the temperature, the humidity, all that kind of stuff. So that's why I'm saying this is a very different ball game and certainly a winnable race for Matt. Um, but I want to I want to see how that car in the the horsepower making conditions can perform versus the horsepower robbing conditions, because those guys clearly had the right approach and Matt uh, and Matt drove the thing like a boss. So. For Matt's for Matt Hartford rather, um, that the tail of the tape will come Friday night. If he's got the raw power to, to be a top uh, top four five three four five qualifier, I think oh boy, this guy may may really have the mojo to get the job done. In Pro Stock Motorcycle, the story of course was Matt Smith. He comes back up with the Buell and just annihilated everybody. I mean, this was. And I say this with respect. I say this with respect to everybody else in the category, even though it sounds disrespectful. But this was even a race. I mean, this was a guy. This was a guy out there like making time trials. I mean, it was. It was wasn't. It was not a contest. <laughs> it was not a contest. And it does speak to Matt's ability and his mental his mental acuity because these are the harder races to win mentally when you know you've outqualified the field by upwards of a tenth of a second. When you're setting speed records in the heat of the day, when you're becoming the first rider to go on the seven O's on the mountain, when you're becoming the first rider to go over 190 on the mountain, this is like, okay, just don't mess it up. And not only did Matt not mess it up, he he rode with the same intensity he he has ridden with um, even early in this year when he was on a Suzuki that looked like it was uh, a half a step behind everybody as he was still working on his tune-up. So there has been some question regarding that Buell's performance on the mountain, the tech department, and if there's going to be some sort of a, a realignment of weights um, or factoring on that uh, on that basis. I, I have not heard anything that there will be. I do not believe there will be. I believe that the Denver conditions present themselves as such a one-off that it would be difficult for the tech department to make some sort of a determination on you know fairness, balance, or performance, if you will, based on that one event. Matt clearly unequivocally understands that v-twin bike because he wrote he wrote it for years and years and he tuned it for years and years it was some people thought it was kind of a an odd decision i didn't um for the for that simple reason i mean matt's matt's tune-up book on a suzuki is is paper thin matt's tune-up book on that buell is is like the old testament there's multiple volumes and clearly he had the high altitude volume figured out the big question now is what is he going to ride in sonoma and as of me saying these words right now, he's not committed one way or the other. In my mind, if, if I'm going to try to put my Smith family racing hat on, which includes, uh, of course, Angie, which includes Matt, which includes Ricky, I am not touching that motorcycle. That Buell is going back in the trailer until the countdown starts, and then I might take the Buell out. Clearly, he has the advantage of of history on that bike and and you know the the performance advantage he had on the mountain was simply not just raw horsepower in my estimation it was that whole package we've been talking about being able to better manage being able to better manage the machine because you have a level of predictability you know what it's going to like you know what it's not going to like that said 
the bike is obviously very fast, and we saw that motorcycle once before this year. He brought it out in Houston in the final when he when the Suzuki suffered a mechanical failure in the semis, and he could not turn that bike around. So he brought the Buell out. Ultimately, lost that race. But of all the of all the NHRA races I have ever been to personally, whether as an event announcer or as a you know TV guy, play by play guy, that is with beyond a shadow of a doubt the most mechanically um, dominating performance I've ever seen. And it, it may be underappreciated because it's pro stock motorcycle and, and maybe sometimes that class doesn't get the attention that they truly do deserve. But that was astonishing. He held qualified the field by 700s and then, then he was chopping the throttle shot early on purpose on some of those other qualifying runs. The incrementals were right there, if even if not a little bit better, but he knew. And so he saved it for race day, which is what a racer does. And um, the seven nineties, the hundred ninety mile an hour speed, just um, just incre- incredible stuff. So we're going to find out what kind of chess player Matt is. I think we already know he's a pretty high level chess player. Um, we're going to find out how loudly uh, anybody or everybody else in the class will yell and scream about an adjustment for the Buells. And again, if I'm playing the cards that Matt's playing, that Buell does not see the light of day until uh, until the countdown. Maybe I use it as a, a break glass in case of emergency situation. But uh, as of right now, Matt's uh, carrying a, a very, very large, large amount of momentum on his back, and we'll see what uh, that translates to in Sonoma. He is also rocketing up the point standing. Steve Johnson, uh, his points lead has winnowed down to very small digits to the point where uh, Angel can pass him, uh, Matt could pass him at this race as well coming up. So we're going to find out. And it should be noted, the Pro Stock motorcycles are down to the nitty-gritty when it comes to locking in countdown spots here. So... Uh, they will race in Sonoma, they will race in Topeka, and then they will race at the U.S. Nationals, and then we will be in the playoffs. They do not compete in Seattle. They do not compete in Brainerd. So that takes two races off the table for the motorcycles. So we've gone through Pro Stock Car and Pro Stock Motorcycle. I think Funny Car is the next logical place to go. Um, the Jack Wyatt, the Jack Wyatt, Matt Hagen upset in round one, just jaw-dropping, and Again, you know, Jack Wyatt is an incredible guy, been racing funny cars since 76, has raced in every organization possible in Nitro Funny Cars, um, the UDRA, the AHRA, the IHRA. I mean, he has been around and been doing this. Really, the only person who's been at it longer than him in funny cars is John Force in the modern parlance of drag racing. And so he's out there with his uh, the Bojo's uh, Colorado Pizza sponsorship. And I did some research on Bojo's during the show because I knew we were going to see Jack in the second round and in the semis because you're in the bye by defeating Matt Hagen. And that place is pretty cool. You, you It's pizza by the pound. So you can buy like a one-pound pizza or a three-pound pizza or even, yes, a five-pound pizza if you really want to go whole hog and, and maybe feed an army or something. But... Uh, Bojo's got an incredible amount of exposure from Jack Wyatt and, and, you know, Jack, they played it safe in the second round. We all expected them to do that. They turned the car around, came up, did a burnout, and then basically idle it down the racetrack. And there was some question as to why he would do that. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just start it up and idle it to the starting line and then stage it and shut it off and push it back? My opinion is you do that burnout and everything. You don't touch it after that. You fire it up, you do your burnout, you back up. It's not leaking, it has no issues, it's not knocking and banging any more than it should be, and you stage the car and you drive down the racetrack, and now you've kind of made sure that everything is copacetic. You're not going to get shut off for a problem on the starting line in the semifinal because you know everything has been assembled properly. 
and it made sense to me and it was a little bit of a different approach but if i had to if i had to guess on jack's philosophical reasons for that it was to make sure that all the the uh, i's were dotted and the t's were crossed as far as the mechanical assembly of the car goes what can we say you know it was the matt hagan show for so long and and then it was the matt and robert show and really the year started as the robert show right back-to-back wins and then hagan comes on very strong winning gainesville and, and putting on a display and now it's back to the seesaw of robert seemingly having the upper hand in nitro funny car and he had the upper hand by winning the race and he has extended his points lead and qualifying they were chasing Matt Hagen the entire time only by a hundred or two but they were chasing him they were chasing him they were chasing him and we got to see them run side by side in basically every session because the cars are one and two in the points to start with and they are so fast and were so fast in their progressive qualifying sessions that they ended up as last pair uh, basically every time down and that's fun to me that's very fun those are little simulated battles they're little simulated races as much as as much as professionals as those two are they both attack the tree every time they go up there uh, procedurally, they're both very consistent. You don't see any sort of rigmarole going on at the starting line as far as hanging anybody out or diving in or any of that type of thing. And they're just two great guys to watch race. Now, for um, Bob Tasca, when Bob Tasca came up in the semifinals, I posed the question to Tony Pedregon in the booth. I said, and, and, and I posed it really in, in, a, in a favorable way to Wyatt asking, if Jack Wyatt was in a better position than we may believe him to be on paper, because Bob Tasca was going to be racing for lane choice. He was going to be pushing. He was going to be pressing as hard as he could to get down in the very low fours to have that final round lane choice. And Jack Wyatt's going to go down the racetrack. One way or the other, that thing's going to go down. Maybe it's a 410, maybe it's a 420, maybe it's whatever, but it is going to go down the racetrack. So this idea that, um, you know, could Tasca screw it up for himself by smoking the tires by trying to get lane choice was real. It did not happen. Bob Tasca handled his business and, and went on to the final round where he, for the second race in a row, I should, I should mention, both of Height and uh, Height and Tasca raced each other in the final. And for the second race in a row, the result was the same with Robert Height taking the Wally and, again, uh, piling more points on what is already a very impressive stack right now. There were other bright spots in there. We, we looked at some of the other hard-running cars, and, and you look at some of the mid-pack style funny cars, but there are teams that just simply got to step on it. I mean, it's Cruz Pedregon went 4.038 um, as his best run, and that wasn't even near close to, to what the, the top the top sheer, top tier teams were making. His is a top-tier team, but I'm talking performance-wise. They just were not in the ballpark. Uh, J.R. Todd and crew starting to show some signs of life there, certainly. John Force looked good to, to a point, and he looked good to a point until he had to race his teammate, and, and Robert uh, dispatched him uh, in the semifinals to go to the final. So for John Force racing, it was still a pretty good day. You put a car in the final, you win the race. For John Force personally, I'm sure he was looking for his next Bandamir triumph. It just didn't happen because of his own teammate being so well-prepared and so well in their execution. In the top fuel category, Boy, oh boy. Uh, Greg Carrillo. I mean, just the story of the summer so far. The guy's his first appearance of the year qualifies, what, at one point he was sitting second, then he got knocked back down a little bit. But, uh, you know, Greg is Greg is one of those guys that is just so determined to do it correctly and to do it a few times correctly as opposed to a lot of times incorrectly. And the results show. 
uh, Glenn Micris, Aaron Brooks tuning on the car, making sure it's prepared, and he runs down there, wallops the place on Friday night. The people loved it. He's from Arizona, but he considers uh, Denver, Colorado his home racetrack. He's sponsored by Santiago's, which is a, a, a chain of Mexican restaurants that are in the greater Denver area. And um, it was fun to see. It did not go his way in the first round. Uh, he did not escape the uh, the round one troubles, if you will, which is kind of the, the way of the world out there. But um, still, that the, the great Cruella story was was really good. Leo wins the race, and this is this is something I want to spend a couple minutes talking about because it is it is very difficult in so many ways. It's difficult to paint. I don't say accurate pictures. It's difficult to paint a full picture in our television shows. It's difficult to do it. Why? Because we have a five-hour race that we need to air in a three-hour window. We have uh, obligations to our advertisers and sponsors through different segments, do different things. It is difficult to paint a full picture in terms of a driver's approach and persona. And and even beyond that, it's it's difficult to tell the or fill the full picture regarding a performance level or lack thereof. So when I was at the racetrack on Friday morning, I got in nice and early, which I like to do. And I was there working through and combing through some numbers and combing through some notes and combing through some preconceived notions I had about a couple different cars. And as I was going through looking back at the last six races for virtually everybody in top fuel, I I was looking at everybody but the first two or three cars because we know how their last six races have been. They've been solid. That's why they're the first two or three cars. I was looking down the sheet, and I wanted to see Sean Langdon, Doug Coletta, Leah, Antron, this type of thing. And so the first one that really kind of blew me out of the water when I was looking at these numbers was Sean Langdon. And the reason it blew me out of the water is because if you look at his last six races and you go to, say, Epping, or even you go all the way back, you go all the way back to the... If we take the last six races, I believe the one I started with was Virginia, maybe something. No, I didn't. Was it Virginia? Yeah, it was somewhere in there. No, it was Houston. I'm sorry, Houston. So I started with Houston, and you look at Sean Langdon's race day runs, his performances on race day, and from Houston until round one of Epping, not so much to talk about. And then all of a sudden, literally something happened in the first round of Epping because from that point forward, that car has gone down the racetrack every time he hasn't won every round because he's been outrun but he has gone down the racetrack representatively for the environment 370s 380s whatever every single time it was you can draw a line in that season around one epping is where the you have a negative on top of it you have a lot of positives below it and so when i started looking at all this stuff i thought man langdon's car is better than I thought it was. I went back and looked at his averages on Sunday. I went back. Of course, his reaction times are rock solid. That that was never even a question. But I went back through and just started looking at how many runs that they didn't complete. It's like, whoa, that's that's a very small number. Uh, What's their average speed? Okay, that's a representative number. And I came to this conclusion that it's like they have been not victimized, but they've been on the wrong side of a lot of squeakers. And as we have seen in this sport, occasionally you get on the wrong side of a lot of squeakers you want that to happen in the front half of the year because somehow, some way, the drag racing gods always seem to pay people back by the end of the season. So those squeakers that he's been on the wrong side of up until Denver, uh, at some point, the worm's going to turn and he'll be on the right side of those, and that, that'll change the narrative a little bit. He went to, he's been late in the rounds, multiple, I mean, multiple last three races have been great, including Denver, of course. He went to the final, but 
Uh, last few races have been very good for that team. It is it is really to me uh, clear that the Langdon car is is for real, and we're going to be seeing that car going late rounds until the foreseeable future, or they make some sort of a drastic change. Speaking of a drastic change, that was ultimately what ended up costing Sean Langdon the race. They had to replace a rear end housing or a complete rear end, I guess you'd say. And, and it, unfortunately, there was some some leakage from that. That's what got him shut off. And you saw him, if you watched the show, in a kind of a dejected fashion, as you'd expect, uh, walking away from the starting line. So uh, Sean Langdon's car impressed me. The other one that really jumped out and impressed me and, and, and shocked me to a degree, Leah. Leah Pruitt's car and Sean Langdon's car were the two that I looked at and went, wait a second here. I know they're not even close in the top five in top fuel. They're down the bottom of that top 10, so to speak. But geez, Louise, let's look at these numbers. And when we talk about this epping, you know, the epping phenomenon, if you will, for Langdon, whatever they changed there and, and has had a positive effect, the same thing can really be said for Leah. And, you know, I think the 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 amount of pressure and spotlight that's been on Leah so far this year um, and it usually does burn very bright for her, even in normal times. Leah is, of course, one of the most high-profile drivers we have in the sport. So Leah always has a level of energy, a level of um, a level of pressure, or however you want to say it, of aura around her that she needs to to manage mentally. And what what I saw on Sunday of her and that team, I saw a team. And if you look at the numbers, I have seen a team that has been ready to win for let's say at least six races, a team that was formed over the wintertime, a team of people that had to come together and not necessarily relearn things, but get the company procedures down, a team that was going to be led by Neil Strasbaugh, Mike Domagala, uh, Ryan McGilvery. Those are your big three on that. McGilvery being the car chief, Domagala, and Neil Strasbaugh being the, the two, you know, kind of brains in the trailer, so to speak. And so, you know, when we look at some of the early races, you know, yeah, of course, it didn't qualify for Gainesville, the one-session Gainesville deal, and we can go through a bunch of those scenarios, but it was almost uh, a situation where when she would be on and crush the tree, the car would smoke the tires. When she would be late, the car would go fast, and they'd get it, and they'd get outrun or lost a whole shot, yada, yada, yada. The bottom line is, when I looked at these numbers of these last six races, all that stuff started to melt away, and... I was looking at a car that was way better statistically than I thought it was. I'm looking at a driver that was way better statistically than I thought she was. Over the last six races, she had one crummy light, one. And it was in the second round at Epping. She was 125. And so all of a sudden, the picture changed for me when I when I was doing this this research. And and typically we look we look at a lot of different things to set up for our shows, but I was doing a more deep dive than I normally do because I had the time. And doing that deep dive on all these cars, those were the two that rose to the top of my personal deck, if you will. And then look what happened. They both made the final round, and it was a culmination of a lot of different things for both of those teams. And um, the leaking rear end uh, ended Sean's day. I think it would have been a real barn burner of a race. I, I'm, I'd be... I'd be willing to bet they had that car set up to go somewhere in the high 380s just like Leah did, so it would have come down to, to who could chop the tree better. Um, they both would have left well. She left well even on her solo. So Tony Stewart Racing now has a victory in Nitro Funny Car. They have a victory in Top Fuel. They have, I mean, obviously way more than one victory in, in Funny Car, but look at the number of wins Tony Stewart Racing has, and then look at the number of wins a lot of the other really high-profile teams have. Uh, yeah. So it's been a very good year already for Tony Stewart Racing. I think I think the 
yin and yang of having the turnkey funny car team hit the ground running and win and then have the home built top fuel team finally get this get the job done in, in Denver and I say finally not not as like a, a jab at them but they get so much attention they're so high profile the fact is um, that there is an expectation there fairly or unfairly the fans put it on we probably put it on you go okay this is Tony Stewart's involved in this thing they're bound to be winners soon and we got to see how difficult this process is and, and I got to hang out with that team in the in the winter circle on Sunday afternoon and that TSR environment is unique every crew guy from both cars was there in that winter circle they're all drinking beer they're all talking they're all laughing Dickie Venables Matt Hagen was over there I mean so what I saw being in that group of people in that winter circle was something pretty neat and it was something that says to me this first win could be a damn break it could be a damn break for guys like Damagala and Neil Strasbaugh who now as we all know they're epically talented but now they've established themselves as being winner winners game changer for them they were never lacking confidence they're never lacking parts they're never lacking pieces or support but now they've won and that changes that changes the way people look at you it changes the way people race you bottom line end of story so that's a big deal there I saw Leah and Tony interacting um, I saw her and, and and really her interviews over the course of Sunday her composure in the race car uh, her reaction times including that 15 light in the semifinals I saw a person who was very much in their element was very much in their comfort zone was very much in in their space and there is no reason to believe none that these guys can't go and win Sonoma this week there is no reason to believe that that all of a sudden they're going to forget how to go drag racing in five days and for everybody else this may be a big problem this could be a the western swing could be a big problem for the current points leaders in top fuel not that they're going to lose their leads but they're going to have somebody else to contend with if this team goes out here and goes back to back, I think it becomes a whole different. We just tear up the playbook. Whatever playbook we've had in top fuel this year, we just tear it up because now, you know, now it's a now it's not just a simply a um, a Brittany, a Mike Salinas, a Justin Ashley story. You put Leah in there, and Steve Torrance is fourth in the points. He's still there. They're going rounds. They're doing things. He had that really unfortunate two twenty six reaction time against Austin Prock. Uh, a a minor flash of of just being a human being came into play there and and we see it so infrequently out of Steve and uh, it was a mental mistake he he said it I you know there's no way to get around it he made a mental mistake so he'll be racing with a chip on his shoulder but do not sleep on this Dodge Power Broker stop fuel car I really do feel as though what they did for themselves in De- in Denver. Um, has the the big the big opportunity to be a narrative changer as we go down the stretch of the season and get in the countdown. Don't let them win again, guys. I I I can't stress that enough. Do not let those guys. Do not let them win again. And a nitro funny car. I I do believe that Robert Height has the uh, has the chops to sweep the swing. I think if uh, some guy named Matt Hagen didn't exist, uh, he'd have a better than even better chance to do it. But the way that the season's gone so far, the convincing performance in Dallas, the fact that we go down to Sonoma, he has won it the last three times we've raced there. 
he set the spat the fastest speed in the history of drag racing there 339.85 so you know we can go down the list but Jimmy Prox said that they, they took two weeks to develop a game plan for Denver and they executed the game plan and won the success they have had at Sonoma means that they don't need a two week window to make a game plan for Sonoma they are going to go in there with that basically 2019 tune up or 2019 approach which is I believe still what the what they're on and we should see some pretty spectacular stuff the air will be either 800 900 feet so you're talking air that's basically 8,000 feet better than you had a week before and it is certainly always about managing power but it is managing power with a, a, a lighter hand and a looser rein when we get to Sonoma, California. You can really let them eat, and that's what makes Sonoma so much fun. The raw performance available, the facility's beautiful, and it's going to be like in the low 80s every day. It is going to be the most pleasurable weather we have probably had at a race in, in some time. The fans in Denver are so hardcore. It was almost 100 degrees on Sunday, and they were packed in the place like sardines. It was awesome. Sonoma's always busy. The crowd's always great, and the weather is going to be spectacular. I would look ahead to Seattle, but I can't. I can't. I can't look ahead to Seattle because I'm so fascinated by what's happened in Denver. And so, again, my, I think my, my four takeaways are, one, what bike is Matt Smith on? Big storyline there. And why? Whether he gives us all the reasons why or not it's it's his decision Matt Hartford how quickly do they come out of the gate can Matt Hartford come out of the gate establish himself as a top top half qualifier and really a top half of the top half qualifier and make us understand that not only did they handle the the down power mountain correctly with their tune-up but they also make the type of power that can put them on top of a field so that's my that's my Matt Hartford line Nitro Funny Car, um, you know, the only question is how quick is height going to be? And will we see an inverse of the situation we saw in Denver? Meaning, will it be Hagen chasing height in Sonoma? Because it was height chasing Hagen during qualifying there on the mountain. And finally, in Top Fuel, don't let him do it, guys. Don't let him do it. I, I, I am fascinated by the idea of what has been unleashed and unlocked in the Dodge Power Brokers team uh, with the success they had at Denver. That's going to be great to watch. And can Sean Langdon not even bounce back? Can Sean Langdon just maintain what they've been doing in terms of uh, in terms of consistency making full runs down the racetrack? Outside of the rear end anomaly that we saw, this car has been so very good. And, you know, it's been a it's been hitting a lot of doubles and triples. But hitting a lot of doubles and triples during the regular season is nice because you pack those points up. The downside for Sean Langdon is he has the most oil down points in top fuel right now, 60. If you took Sean Langdon's oil down penalties and added them back into his points total, he'd be fourth in the points. And That may surprise you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it only surprises me. But if you took Sean Langdon's 60 oil down point penalty and put it back on his score right now, he would go ahead of Steve Torrance and he would be the fourth car in the points. Did you think that? I didn't until I did the math, and then until I kind of deciphered what they've been doing since Epping, it and it's uh, it impressed me. 
So there you have it. There is my ramble on Denver. There is my look ahead to Sonoma. Uh, next week, I will gather up some guests. It was just this week with the one day home and the fact that a lot of people didn't even come home. There's a lot of racers out on the road, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's doing their thing. Just went old school monologue style. That's my thoughts. That's my breakdown. And that is this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and checking us out week in and week out. We really do truly appreciate uh, our listenership, and it's a great way for us to continue the conversation between races. We will be on Saturday morning at 1030 a.m. Eastern for round early round qualifying. That's going to be on FS1. And then Sunday morning, we will be on FS1 with a final qualifying show. And then at 4 p.m. Eastern time, you will turn on your local Fox affiliate again, the big Fox broadcast network, as we rock and roll at the Denso NHRA Sonoma Nationals. It'll be fast and fun. And remember, I asked everybody, if you watch the show, I said, hey, write down these elapsed times from these finals, and let's compare them to what we see in qualifying first round at Sonoma. It's going to blow our minds. It's going to be great. And I can't wait to bring you all the action with myself and the whole NHRA on Fox crew all weekend long. Hopefully I see you at Sonoma. If not, hopefully you see me at Sonoma, and I will see you on the airwaves next week here at the NHRA Insider Podcast. Thanks for listening.